I grew up in Escondido, California, a North County suburb of San Diego. Uh, I understood my family growing up to be a pretty average, middle-class American family in Southern California. Three of my four grandparents, yes, I have some photos here from my childhood you can look at. Three of my four grandparents all had rags to riches, post-depression, American stories. None of them went to college. My paternal grandfather didn't even make it through high school, needing becoming the, the oldest boy in the family who had to support the family at a young age. Uh, but they all found themselves, my grandparents, moving to California, eventually establishing themselves in the middle class, and my father carried on the legacy of climbing the ladder of opportunity. He was the first in his family to graduate from college, then went on to graduate school, becoming a lawyer with a small private practice. My mom married him right after high school in 67, and she held down the fort as a young wife and mother while he fought in Vietnam. And then she supported him through law school, eventually became his paralegal. And these pictures show you a bit of my childhood. Growing up, my two siblings and I were given lots of opportunities to learn, experiment. There I am in a band. <laughs> Matures individuals. As a student from a young age in the Gifted and Talented program, I often got to be a part of awesome class experiences, extra resources in my classes, interesting class trips, engaging teachers. All of that fostered a love of learning at a young age. By high school, this track of education had brought me to AP and honors classes, prepping me for success in college. And as you can see, I was active in lots of arts-based extracurricular activities, my parents graciously played for lots of music lessons and drove me all over the city for auditions and play rehearsals. And no doubt the pictures I've been sharing, you know, are probably typical for a lot of families, a lot of kids and teens who grew up in the 80s and 90s. But looking at them now, I don't just see happy memories. I also see the starkness of what I was unable to see as a child. I see the starkness of the whiteness of my upbringing. It wasn't that people of color didn't live in Escondido. Our school, our city, was 40 miles from the border with Mexico. I recently looked at my high school yearbook and noted that probably about 50% of the students in my graduating class were people of color, but most of them weren't in any of my classes. They weren't in my clubs, my show choir, my theater productions. The world I grew up in was largely segregated. And this segregation was one of the core foundations that socialized me into an identity of whiteness. Sure, I got the message in school, or the occasional time that race was directly discussed at home, that to discriminate against someone because of their race was clearly wrong, that we know better than that. But mostly, race growing up was not directly named. It wasn't discussed, leaving me with at least an unconscious understanding that ultimately race wasn't or shouldn't be important. Well, we're now well into a series on how the lenses and frames we see the world through and the way we prioritize some views over others can be a form of idolatry. Often this prioritization of certain lenses and frames over others even leads to systems of oppression. We've explored a number of these. We've talked about androcentrism, 
which is the centering of the masculine, the centering of maleness, which I've been arguing is linked to patriarchy. It's what allows it to be so entrenched. We've talked about heteronormativity, the centering of these binaries of sex, gender, sexuality, and the link to oppression of people who don't fall within the, the, uh, those binaries in a heteronormative way. Today, I want to talk about what lies behind the oppression of people of color in the United States. And I hope we can all acknowledge that as much as some of us might want to believe or have wanted to believe at some point that race was no longer important, that all people are equal now, that slavery's been abolished, that the civil rights movement took place, that we've even had a black president. Instead, regular events on the news, in our social media feeds, in our neighborhoods, remind us every day that clearly racism is alive and well. Here at Haven, we talk a lot about wanting to create a safe place for a diverse group of people. In the back, when, uh, when we have some time, you can go look at our, our little Venn diagram. It talks about our mission as Haven, trying to hold intention as a community, being safe, diverse, and Jesus-centered. And so, of course, that means we should be acknowledging the reality of racism. And I believe sincerely that everyone in this room agrees it's evil and wrong. But we're still, I think, early in the conversation as a community, as a society, about what actually allows this racism to persist. What idols does our society invest in that perpetuate it? And how are we, particularly we who might be white, many of us progressive, consider ourselves non-racist, how are we actually still invested in these idols? What would it look like to smash the idols, to follow the true God instead? These are some of the questions we're going to wrestle with a bit today. Now, I want to acknowledge up front that as we get into these various topics in this Smashing Idols series, that the content might land differently for different ones of us, depending on our own identities. Okay? Particularly those in Haven who've experienced marginalization because of race, because of gender, because of sexual orientation, you're likely more aware of, less invested in, whatever idol we might need to discuss. Author and spiritual teacher Richard Rohr says it this way, if you're a person of color, a person of a different gender, you know what the idols of a system are because you've been excluded from it. Those of us who enjoy the privilege don't recognize the idols of the culture. But my hope in cultivating these conversations is not simply to speak to and on behalf of majority culture folk who might need the most waking up in regards to whatever idol we're discussing, but to lead a conversation that recognizes that even if we're in different places in the journey, all of us are impacted by these idols. And divesting from them is a cooperative process that I think we all can play a role in. I also want to acknowledge from the front that I lead in this conversation with gravity and with care. Each of the teachings in this series gets a bit more intimidating for me as a speaker, and that's true today. So I ask for your grace as I open up the conversation and I lead us into it acknowledging my own whiteness. Yes, I'm white. 
And the whiteness that I've been socialized into has made it uncomfortable at times for me to even name that. But I believe it's really important for each of us as we move forward to consider and own our own identity, our own places in this bigger story that none of us have chosen so that we can all work together in writing the next chapter. Okay? So with all that said, let's get into it. This week, athletic brand Nike was in the news for a shoe that was until it wasn't. Maybe you saw this. Earlier in the week, media outlets reported that Nike had chosen to pull their new 4th of July athletic shoe after objections to the shoe came from former NFL player and Nike campaign, company endorser Colin Kaepernick. Now, Kaepernick apparently reached out to people from Nike to express concerns over the shoe because it featured the Betsy Ross flag, you see there, the original US flag adopted in 1777 with a circle of 13 stars to represent the original colonies. Of course, the news that Nike had made this shoe and then decided not to sell it after all did stir up a lot of people's feelings, right? Twitter and Facebook were abuzz this week with passion and outrage as folks absorbed the news. And perhaps predictably, it seems like the responses largely broke down into like two different points of view. On the one side, there's Colin Kaepernick himself and others who are standing with him who are trying to point out why issuing this shoe in celebration of Independence Day could be problematic. The shoe centers a flag that was never meant by its creators to speak freedom and independence to people who look like Colin Kaepernick, right? On top of that, there's widespread evidence that this history has not been lost on current white supremacist groups who have at times centered the flag in their own demonstrations and used it as the background imagery for their violent words and actions directed against people of color. But for a lot of conservatives, and it has to be said, a lot of white people, to take issue with the Betsy Ross flag is just un-American. Nike has caved to liberal overreach for them, this is just another sign of social justice warriors going too far. First, Kaepernick and the like refused to honor our troops by kneeling during the national anthem, they say. Now they're spoiling what should be America's happy birthday party by calling into question a historic American symbol, our first flag. Why do you have to be so divisive, these folks say, calling out issues of race where they don't belong. Just get over it, have a hot dog, have a beer, and chill. Maybe you've heard some of that. And as these opinions are expressed back and forth on social media, we see a lot of tension, right? Tension, I think, is ultimately wrestling through which set of frames and lenses should be at play. As people of faith, our own weighing of that question also has to consider the perspectives of, like, Jesus. What might he have to say about any of this? Interestingly, while Jesus lived before the time of athletic wear, or football, even the US flag, he did live in a time when a number of the same dynamics were at play. Because these dynamics go beyond our present context, the dynamics of groupthink the dynamics of discrimination, the dynamics of power and privilege and the willingness of human beings to use that privilege to their own advantage, even if it means directly or implicitly participating in the oppression of others. And Jesus had words for the people of his day. 
when he saw these dynamics at play. Words that I think might speak to us in our own journeys to wrestle with these questions too. So let's look together at Matthew 15. Now, if you like to follow along in a handout, this is on it. If you don't have a handout around you, there are some in the back. Raise your hand and we'll get you one. You don't need to follow. Some people like having that. Some people don't. It's fine either way. There's also, if you want a pen, we'll have some fill in the blanks a little later if that's helpful. All right, so we're going to read this. It's on the screen. It's on your sheet. Feel free to read along or just listen. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, they, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. Then the disciples came to him and asked, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, every plant that my heavenly father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, explain this parable to us. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander, these are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. All right, what is all this about? How is this relevant? It's not directly a story about, you know, what you should have on your shoes or whether you should stand for the national anthem, and it's not even a story about whether you should wash your hands before you eat. What is this? I think this is a story about confronting the perspective of the powerful, and we have this on the slide, a story about confronting the perspective of the powerful and recognizing that that perspective can be a kind of blindness. The perspective of the powerful can be a kind of blindness. The key figures Jesus is confronting here are named as the Pharisees and teachers of the law, okay? Don't get hung up on their identity as Jewish leaders. We have to name that that has been a mistake of the church for far too long. To read Jesus is confronting this one particular group of Jewish leaders as a confrontation of Judaism itself or all Jewish leaders in any context, that is untrue. Okay, Judaism is an accepted good in this story. This story is written by Matthew who cared deeply about his own Jewish identity and heritage and felt called to write specifically to a Jewish audience drawing on that heritage. Jesus came and lived as an observant Jew. 
okay? What matters for us is what these folks, these particular Jewish religious leaders represent in their particular cultural context. Does that make sense? We're just talking about one group and what they represent in this culture. And these folks Jesus is talking about are the gatekeepers. They are the power holders in their cultural context. They come from the cosmopolitan capital of the culture and institutional power, Jerusalem. They come out to the country to confront the itinerant rabbi from the Galilee, from the back country. And that country rabbi is followed by a ragtag band. Jesus' followers aren't the educated ones. They're humble fishermen and peasants, working class folk. They are not the rich or the powerful. They're the ruffians who can't sit at the same table with the powerful because they don't conform to the norms of the powerful. Those powerful see them as sketchy. These leaders are smart enough to know that to critique Jesus himself would be politically unwise. He's too popular. But if they critique his followers, by association, they delegitimize Jesus, right? So that's the attack they're taking. Why don't your followers wash their hands before they eat? Don't they care about the tradition of the elders? They could be saying, why do these people have to disrespect our flag? Don't they care about those who died to give them that freedom? Ultimately, they're asking Jesus, what kind of a leader are you that you're not going to require this of them? But Jesus sees what these people of power don't. He sees their hypocrisy. He sees the way they've twisted their understanding of God's commandments to serve their own needs. He brings up just one example that turns their justification for judging his followers on its head. You want to talk about respecting our elders, huh? Okay, great, let's talk about it. And he reminds them how, yes, God intended men and women to honor their parents, to care for them as they needed. I mean, they didn't have social security back then. Caring for your mom and dad was the, so, the safety net. But these religious leaders told their followers they didn't need to provide for their parents economically as long as they gave that money to God, meaning to them, to the temple, to the synagogue, mean, to the religious leaders. Why would they do that? because it served them to do so. They were exploiting the people in the name of religious worship, lining their own pocketbooks, filling the temple with resources while oppressing the elderly. And guess what? God wasn't a fan of that. Jesus calls them out on their hypocrisy, as well as the hypocrisy that's at play even now as they seek to discredit Jesus by going after his sketchy followers. You, see, you, can't, you say you care about purity, Jesus says, but that's a distraction. You're focusing on this petty scruple over what's the appropriate way to eat, and you're missing that your pettiness is causing you to have far more that is counter to God internally than a little dirt might be. It's not what goes, on, goes into your mouth that makes you dirty. It's what's in there inside. And what comes out of your mouth, what you say, that reveals the sin. That's what you need to be concerned about. But the powerful people can't see it. They cannot see their own hypocrisy. They cannot allow themselves to see it because to do so would bring the whole system down. To do so would be to bite the hand that feeds them. And so these holders of power and privilege 
are blind. And as leaders, Jesus believes they are dangerous. Jesus says, do not follow them. His followers aren't sure. They feel nervous, offending these people of power. Are you sure we should question their point of view? I mean, they did make that point about the elders. My parents speak really well of these guys. Is this okay? Jesus says, stop. Turn back. You cannot follow them. They cannot see clearly. They are blinded by privilege and power. And if you follow them, they will lead you into a pit. One of my favorite subjects in school was U.S. history. Something about the stories captivated me. From early on, for me, history was more than just names and dates and election results. I loved connecting with the characters, getting a sense of who people were, how their stories interwove to become our own. Yet I have to acknowledge that again and again, my understanding of history centered people like me, immigrants from Europe, who came to the new world fleeing religious persecution, looking for economic opportunity in search of a bit of land they could call their own. The concept of manifest destiny was celebrated. The stories of these Europeans who understood themselves to have a God-given blessing to make this land their own, to tame it, to harvest it, to civilize it, and that was held up as an origin of our American dream. But I have to admit, the annihilation of indigenous peoples at that dream's expense, yeah, that was softened. I remember being disturbed by events in the book, like the Trail of Tears, but having no framework in that setting to process what it meant that the people I originate from had taken their manifest destiny from others through violence, through annihilation. I remember being disturbed by what were no doubt sanitized reports of black chattel slavery, but I had no framework in my educational setting or my culture to consider what it meant today that people who look like me used and abused and raped and killed people who were black. I remember hearing stories that celebrated innovation and pioneering and riding waves of opportunity in the post-depression era, stories like my grandparents had lived. But these stories never explored how things might have gone for people like my grandparents had their skin not been white. We never talked in my US history class about how the construct of race was created by the powerful throughout our nation's history in order to secure power for some at the expense of others. We never talked about how various ethnicities, French, British, Dutch, German, Italian, Irish, and so on, were assimilated into one. Their various distinct cultural identities erased with one aim in mind, the concentration of power in the hands of those who could assimilate because of the color of their skin and the exclusion of those who did not share that superficial marker. The truth is, we never had these conversations in my advanced placement history class. And I think it was in part because my class, my teacher, our curriculum, the very AP exam itself, like the broader social system around it, had the same kind of blindness of the privileged 
that Jesus was decrying here. It was the self-protective blindness of whiteness. So if whiteness is a kind of blindness, what are its particular blind spots? How does that function? This is where I found the work of <coughs> Dr. Robin D'Angelo particularly helpful. Okay, Dr. D'Angelo, you may have heard of her. She is an academic, a sociologist in the field of race. She's written a number of excellent books, including most recently, White Fragility. She's also the coiner of that term. And in her work, she identifies a number of common conceptions of race that white people tend to hold, which make it difficult for them to see the issues clearly. So we're just going to take a look real quick at two of the big ones. And as I mention these, I want to name that the pervasiveness of whiteness in our culture means that the frameworks and messaging have been absorbed by more than white folk. So brothers and sisters of color may also have absorbed and internalized these messages too. And I invite you, wherever you're at, as you look at these two blind spots, to consider where they may have played a role in your own thinking about race. So first, she says, whites and others influenced by whiteness often see racism as a series of individual acts and explicit attitudes rather than a system of oppression that includes explicit and implicit biases of those who are a part of it. Right? That's a dense one, so I'll just say it one more time. Whites and others influenced by whiteness often see racism as a series of individual acts and explicit attitudes rather than a system of oppression that includes explicit and implicit biases of those who are a part of it. So that's a common misunderstanding, to think of racism as simply individual, intentional acts of race-based discrimination. People using the N-word, carrying tiki torches in Charlottesville, posting vile comments on Facebook. We can point to that and say, well, there you go. That's racism. I would never do that. That's the problem, right? But racism is much bigger than these individual explicit actions. Racism is a form of oppression based on race. We've been talking about oppression throughout this series. So remember, the definition is racism, oppression is not just prejudice. Oppression is prejudice plus power. Prejudice plus power. It's historic, it's systemic, it's institutional, it's beyond any individual. And if that's true, then it means racism can't ever happen like in reverse. Sometimes you hear white people talk about reverse racism. That doesn't happen because racism goes one way in the United States with white people on top and people of color of various races and ethnicities holding less power in varying degrees. Racism includes inequitable distribution of resources, inequitable access to education, inequitable access to voting rights, to health care, and so much more. Racism is also beyond explicit bias. It's beyond explicit bias. We may not want to think of ourselves as biased in any way, but social scientists tell us as human beings it's actually impossible for us to be without bias. Okay, It's part of what it means for us to be socialized. We learn from infancy how to categorize. And what tells us how to sort all of the information that's coming our way is the biases we learn. We actually can't not learn them. Okay? 
Most of them aren't explicit. They're not conscious. Most of them are implicit, which is why it's tricky, right? So we may believe our parents taught us not to discriminate on basis of race. We believe our parents taught us to see everyone equally. But the social scientists would say that's actually a myth. Our parents may have wanted to teach us that. We may want to teach our children that. But it's not actually possible. We are socialized from an early age to be biased, and the implicitness of the biases whites have learned, that whites are normal, trustworthy, beautiful, knowledgeable, safe, and all other persons are perhaps to some degree less so, those implicit biases are a hugely important component of racism as a structure of oppression remaining intact. It's an important part of the blindness of whiteness. Now, I do want to point out, before leaving this blind spot, that while racism on a large scale in the US functions between whites and people of color, people of color are not a monolith, right? The evil of racism impacts communities of color too, often pitting ethnic groups against each other through discrimination and difference in social power as well. So whether we're white or not, it's important for all of us to examine the biases we were socialized into, right? And how they participate in upholding racism for everyone. So not seeing the systemic and implicit nature of racism, that's the first big blind spot of whiteness. The second important blind spot of whiteness that Dr. D'Angelo notes works together with that, and she calls it the good-bad binary. And this binary is an effect of living in a post-civil rights era, in an era where we still talk about Dr. King, right? It's an effective adaptation of racism in a world where, by and large, society has identified that racism is wrong. So for many whites, racism is seen as this binary. To be racist is to be a bad person. To be not racist is to be a good person. Okay, And let's just be honest. This is particularly true in places like the Bay Area, in progressive places. right? And so we say, you know, you may have these qualifications that you think of when you hear the word racist. You say bad, and that means ignorant, bigoted, prejudiced, mean-spirited, old, right? Some group of that. And then not racist. Well, that's good. Educated, progressive, open-minded, well-intentioned, maybe young. If I am those things, then I can't be a racist. I'm a good person, right? But this binary causes white people particularly to feel really defensive in conversations about race. Because we all fear being seen as a bad person, right? And according to the binary, you can't be a good person and be complicit with racism. I think this defensiveness is maybe what we saw on display recently when candidate Joe Biden was called out for saying something racially problematic. And rather than apologizing and seeking to learn like how he had offended, he defended himself, right? Proclaiming, well, there is not a racist bone in my body. Again, Biden's focusing maybe on intentional acts and explicit biases and is defensively working to distance himself from racism. 
because to acknowledge himself as even implicitly participating in it means that he sees himself as a bad person or he might be seen by others that way, right? But this taboo for whites of owning our part in racism only reinforces the status quo. It doesn't help us move forward. In fact, Dr. D'Angelo sums it up this way. We have the quote up here, I think. This binary is probably the number one construct that keeps racism in place and makes it nearly impossible to talk to white people about racism. Everyone take a deep breath, <laughs> in case you're feeling it. These two blind spots working together function to keep white people even progressive white people, from really dealing with the ways that we uphold systems that are oppressive to people of color, the ways that we participate in racism. And as long as we remain unwittingly or defiantly blind to them, we who are white are like the leaders Jesus critiqued in his day. We are people who are not safe to follow because we cannot see how our investment in a system that benefits us to the expense of others twists our understanding of reality. Throughout this series, we've been talking about how perhaps humans have adapted in their capacity to make convincing idols, that we don't carve statues and worship them any longer, but we do allow our perspectives, our constructs, the frames and lenses we see the world through to shape our understanding of truth. And I have been positing this is a kind of idolatry, and if this is so, then I think clearly whiteness is an idol. It distorts our view of humanity. It distorts our view of what it means to live in community. It distorts our view of God. But here's the good news, friends, because there is good news. The good news is we don't worship a white God. Amen? We do not worship a white God. Despite what you might have been told, we do not worship a white God. I believe we do worship a God of mercy, a God who desires all of us to see the divine, to see others, to see ourselves more clearly, a God who came to embody what it means to be human in community so that we might see, a God who promises freedom and forgiveness for our collective sin and offers an invitation to new life and new sight and a pathway to receive it for any of us who find ourselves blinded. There's another story in the New Testament that I think might provide an interesting and hopeful counterpoint to the first. So we're going to just take a moment to look at that too. We find it in the book of Acts, after the death and resurrection and ascension, of Jesus. So read this with me. 
Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, and he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind, and he did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. And the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. And the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, and placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. And he got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. On the road to Damascus, Saul had an encounter with the living Jesus. Saul, the pinnacle of power and privilege. Saul, the Pharisee of Pharisees. Saul, the ultimate gatekeeper, empowered to shut down the rebels. In this case, empowered to shut down this movement of Jesus' followers through execution. This Saul encounters the living Jesus, and he physically loses his sight. His eyes come to reflect his inner reality. He's been blinded all along. Now he's forced to recognize it. He's confronted for his complicity in not simply persecuting this rogue element of political protesters. He's confronted for persecuting Jesus himself, persecuting the manifestation of God's own self, God who identifies with the marginalized and is calling out those who endanger them. But there's not just judgment and a sentence for Saul. He isn't just banished. He's not simply done for as a leader. There is an extension of real grace. There's an invitation to be healed 
There's an opportunity to gain new sight. Saul's invited to go, to be led instead of to lead, and to submit to someone he wanted to kill. He's invited to receive Ananias in the home he's staying in. Now, I got to say, no doubt Ananias had his own complicated process to go through, right? To go find Saul. Why would this be something God would ask of him? To go to the home where his oppressor is. And yet, God calls Ananias forward into this place of vulnerability. God is calling Ananias into something difficult, something painful. Just as God explains God will be calling Saul into something difficult and painful, I'm going to show him how much he needs to suffer, he says. And there they find one another at the house of Judas on Straight Street. And they are to trust the Holy Spirit in their midst. And when the first becomes last and the last becomes first, when the oppressor receives the blessing of the oppressed, something miraculous happens. Saul doesn't just regain his sight. It says scales fall from his eyes. Something was clouding his vision. But as he's filled with the Spirit, that which kept him from seeing is somehow able to fall away. What was in those scales? How did they function to obscure his vision? How was he changed to have them no longer cloud his eyes? And what might all of this mean for us? I believe this story might remind us that there's hope, that God doesn't want any of us to be blinded by idolatry in any way, that the divine wants to reveal God's true nature to all of us and invite us to see God and one another more clearly. It shows us that the Spirit is about the work of removing scales from eyes. And that often happens for those who are blinded by privilege through humility and submission to those who've experienced oppression. It shows us that the Spirit is the one who calls some to participate in that vulnerable and empowering work of leading those who are coming into sight. I believe I've spent years on a journey of slowly finding scales falling from my eyes those scales have brought a lot of grief as I've grieved the cost of whiteness for us collectively and personally. I grieve the places that whiteness has blinded me to loving others well and receiving them as Jesus did. Mercifully, I've also spent the last 20 plus years experiencing the blessing of deep connection with people of color in my life. And I have to say, my life is so enriched at this point because I've been given the gift of gracious people of color who've been courageous enough to trust the Spirit's activity in my life and in theirs to love me and to help me through my journey of gaining sight. I've been enriched, not just through personal relationships, but through resources, particularly hearing 
following, reading, voices of color who've helped me see my blind spots more. I'm sharing a number of those at the bottom of your sheet in case you find them helpful. And I have hope that this process of growth might continue for me and for all of us in, our, in this community. I have hope that Haven will grow to be a place where we can take this journey together, where we can encounter one another like Ananias and Saul and truly become safe for each other. But I also recognize there's a lot of scales on these eyes. I recognize that I am, I always will be in process. I recognize I need the feedback, that it's a gift to me, and I can also be defensive at times when confronted with my own insensitivity around race. I recognize that I'm trying to learn from my mistakes, but the process can be painful sometimes. I ask for your grace and courage to love me as I continue to heal. At the same time, friends of color, I want to name clearly that it is not your job to help those of us who are white gain sight. As the pastor of this community, I speak permission to you to participate in that work only as you feel led and empowered by the Spirit to do so. I also encourage you to practice self-care and self-love and healing from oppression in whatever ways you need. I bless you to withdraw from mixed-race spaces when it doesn't feel good and to cultivate people of color-only spaces, even within this Haven community, as we grow. I bless you to allow Jesus to speak truth and healing and love to you, free from the idol of whiteness, even as we collectively work together to help our Haven community and the world around divest from it. The truth is whiteness and white supremacy are not anything that any of us have chosen. I don't believe most of us would have chosen to participate in oppressing others. And I know my brothers and sisters of color would not have chosen to experience oppression. We didn't choose it. It was chosen for us. But we can choose, we must choose how we respond to what we've inherited. None of us have the luxury of not being concerned with race. Not on this side of eternity particularly not in this moment in history when black boys are being shot in the streets and brown babies are dying in detention centers. This is life and death stuff. Simply being not racist isn't a category available to us. We are either actively against racism, we are anti-racist, actively participating in dismantling whiteness and white supremacy, or we're complicit in it remaining so. Jennifer Harvey, I'm just gonna end with this, is a pastor and author who says it, at any given time, a space is becoming safer for racism or safer for people of color. I think that's a helpful way to frame it. I pray that here at Haven, God would give us the wisdom, the humility, the courage, the clarity of vision by the Holy Spirit to ever grow in creating more and more safety for our brothers and sisters of color.